Today we're going to do part two of the series we started last week. We began a campaign and a series called Whatever It Takes. And if you weren't here last week, what we talked about is that Jesus Christ did whatever it took to reach us. That God sent his son for God to love the world, that he gave his son Jesus Christ. That whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. It's eternal life that begins here and now and lasts for all of eternity. And that we have a problem. And that Jesus Christ, he would do whatever it takes to solve that problem. The problem was greater than what $100,000 worth of medication would cost. The problem was a sin problem. And while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. He did whatever it took to reach us because he was on a mission to seek and save the lost. And then he leaves us here, once we've trusted Jesus as our Savior, with a mission as well. And it's the same mission. We continue his ministry to seek and save the lost. And the challenge for us in this series is, are we willing to do whatever it takes to reach the people that are yet to know and yet to experience the very thing we've experienced for those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus? who've experienced life change, who know what it's like to be made new, to have no condemnation, to know what it's like to experience his forgiveness, the rest of our souls, for our souls to be awakened to him. We are now on mission. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to reach people that are yet to know that Jesus Christ died for them, that are yet to experience the salvation that we've experienced? And so last week we talked about how that would take a new mentality for us. And this week we're going to talk about the life that it takes, not just different thinking, but different living. And it takes a life of faith. And we're going to pray, and then we'll jump into the message this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters gathered together. Thank you for those that are yet to know your son Jesus that would come and listen in on a meeting of believers that I pray the power of your praise of just singing to you would have drawn them to you. I pray that you'd speak through your word and draw them to you. And I pray for the body of believers that you'd equip us, enable us, empower us, challenge us, convict us, confront us, do whatever you need to do in our lives this morning to get us to the place where we're living the life you desire, a life of faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When you think of certain people, there's probably certain thoughts that come into your mind, maybe emotions that rise up. If you were to see, say, your math teacher at the grocery store, maybe all of a sudden some math equation that they stuck you on in front of class would stick in your mind, or you'd remember some high school experience. If you were to see Kirk Herbstreet walking out through the lobby, maybe you'd think college game day, like something would pop into your head about certain people. And so as we think about that, and we get started this morning, I want to play a little game with you. And for those of you who are new to Southbridge, it's okay to interact with me. Here's how the game's going to work. I want you, when I pop a picture up on the screen, as soon as I pop that picture up, I want you to yell the first word that comes to your mind. So all filters, turn them off right now. No filters. All right, ready? We're going to put some pictures up on the screen. First picture we're going to put up on the screen is Albert Einstein. Smart, genius, brain, arrogant, someone said. All right, did you know him? Uh, that's great. That's fine. Uh, you've got Albert Einstein. There's one. How about this next one? We'll pop on the screen. Lincoln. Truthful, wise, all right, honest Abe, no one said vampires, thank you very much, glad you did not do that today. We got the next one here, Tiger Woods, cheater, cheater. just booing, I hear a low, like a low rumble, how about a, <laughs> thank you Tiger, uh, golf, Nike, Buick, none of that stuff, really, okay, that's what you thought of, we got it, all right, next person we got here, Donald Trump, rich, money. Fired, yes. Bad experiences when you were at work. You think of him. It brings up the emotions. Got it. Next person we have here, Coach K. Winner. Winner. All right, got some Duke fans in the house. All right, Duke. Go Duke. You sent me an email. Got it. Uh, There's different people. Different people think of different things when you see Coach K. Some people say intensity. Intensity was out there. Uh, Maybe some of you, if you're a UNC or an NC State fan, you see him in a different light when that picture comes up. (laughs) The enemy, right? He's out there. The devils, right? The blue devils. But uh, different people that we pop up on the screen make you think of different things. If you were to put other people up there, they'd make you think of other words. I'm gonna, the next one I want you to take very seriously. What if we were to put a slide up there of you? What would you think of? What would pop into your mind? What word 
Because most of us used a one-word description of those people. What one word would come to your mind if you... Obviously handsome, okay, and beautiful and intelligent. But past those words, what would pop into your head if your picture went up there? What would describe you? Some of you may think of your job. Some of you may just think your name. Some of you may think of something that you're well-known for. Maybe some character attributes. Would any of you, any of you, and I'm really talking to you if you're a follower of Jesus, would any of you describe yourself or would anyone else describe you with this word, faith? Because we're supposed to be a people of faith, right? And we're supposed to live by faith. And the Bible says actually in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So there's only one kind of life that actually pleases God. It's a life of faith. Well, wait a minute. Aren't I supposed to be moral and righteous and all those things? Yeah, and you know what the Bible says about that? Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. And the righteous will live by good works. The righteous will live by trying really hard. The righteous will live by faith. We're supposed to be a people of faith. And what does it mean to live by faith? It means to trust God with everything that you are and everything that you have. Would that describe your life? Would that describe you? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it should. If you've yet to trust Jesus as your Savior, which I realize there are people that that's your place, I understand that. It shouldn't describe you. Because by faith, we're not talking about positive thinking. Like we just kind of hope things will happen. We're talking about a trust in the living God. And we live our lives based on his commands and based on his promises and the things that we can't even see. We're trusting him with everything that we are and with everything that we have. Does that describe your life? And if not, why not? Because if you think about the Christian life, it should, shouldn't it? It begins by faith. We start off by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. I remember when I was 18 years old, there was something that hindered me from trusting Jesus as my Savior. When someone sat down and shared the gospel with me, I remember as an 18-year-old, the guy sits down and he tells me, the best you can do before God by all your good works and trying to be moral and doing all that stuff is like a pile of dirty menstrual cloth before God. <laughs> That's kind of shocking. That'll get your attention. It comes from the prophet Isaiah. It was kind of depressing to me. And then he talked, took me to the book of John. He starts telling me about the life of Jesus Christ and how Jesus died for our sins. For God so loved the world, he gave his son, whoever believes in him. And I was excited, and that was great news. But then he said this to me. He said, but if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he's going to take control of your life. Now, I did and still do, to some degree, have control issues. And I thought to myself at that moment, wait, I might not be doing a great job leading my life, but I sure don't want somebody else doing it. I can't trust Jesus as my Savior. I couldn't surrender my life. Then something was holding me back. Let me tell you something. Since that time, I've surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And it's a struggle now to live by faith. It's a back and forth. When I'm in control, he's in control, all those things. But when he's in control, let me tell you, it's way better. To live by faith. That's what we've been called and designed to do, by faith. So what stops you? There's something stopping you. If you wouldn't describe yourself as a person of faith, That wouldn't be the key descriptor of your life, the key characteristic. It should be central in your life. So what is it? Is it an area of your life that you won't surrender? Maybe it's the kids. Maybe it's their finances. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's some plan or dream that you have. Maybe it's something from your past. I don't know what it is, but today I want you to deal with that. And hope today is a significant day in your walk of faith, as today we talk about a life of faith. And if you have your Bibles or an app or something on your iPad that will give you some Bible verses, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 today. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. And uh, for those of you who've been around church before, maybe you've heard Hebrews chapter 11 referred to as the hall of faith. It's where we have a bunch of heroes of the faith. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why in the world is this in Hebrews chapter 11? Do you ever ask yourself that about Bible verses in general? Like, why is John 3.16 
in John chapter 3? Why isn't it in John chapter 2 or John chapter 1? Or why isn't it in Habakkuk? Or why isn't it somewhere else? Why is Hebrews chapter 11 in Hebrews chapter 11? And let me tell you the answer to that question. It's because the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people that are struggling with the very thing that many of us struggle with. Trusting in the things that are unseen versus trusting the things that are seen. And so they want to trust in morality, and they want to trust in their own sacrifices, and they want to trust in their own religiosity. But they've placed their faith in Jesus, and he's saying, now don't go back, now that you've trusted Jesus Christ with your eternal destiny, don't go back to living life on your own. Live a life of faith. And trust God with everything. And for some of us, it might not be morality or religiosity or, mor- or all that other stuff. It might be our money. It might be our job. It might be other people's opinions of us. It might be all these things that we can see and touch, right? Rather than the things that are unseen. And so what he does to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 is he starts showing us what faith does. And he does it through the lives of these different people. They're not special people. God just worked in their life in a special way and he demonstrates how faith works. And how faith works for Abel is that he's able to offer a better sacrifice. Faith enables us to offer a better sacrifice to God. You see, faith allows us to not be destroyed by God's wrath. We see that demonstration through the life of Noah. Faith gives us the opportunity to offer to God the most precious things to us in our lives because we trust him. And we see that through the life of Abraham with his own son, Isaac. You see, faith allows us to go through suffering and realize that God's using it for a point, for the glory of Christ. We see that in the life of Moses. Faith enables us, empowers us to experience true freedom from bondage. And we see that with the Israelites as they walk through the Red Sea. Faith allows us to overcome fears, which is what we see in the life of Abraham today. In Hebrews chapter 11, I'll start reading verse 8. We see this key phrase that goes through this chapter, by faith, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. (laughs) That's scary. And then by faith, same phrase, you see it all over the place in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith he made his home in the promised land. That's in Canaan. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents. That was voluntary, which is strange to me. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, the next generations. That was his son and his grandson who were heirs to him with the same promise. And this is the reason why. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And so he lives by faith. Did you see the first thing he did by faith? He leaves without going, without knowing where he's going. Now that's scary stuff. And I want to tell you, every time you see people take steps of faith, you look at the circumstances and it's scary. And I think about it in my own life, in my own journey. My wife and I have talked, talked about this. Whenever God asks us to step out by faith and do something, it's always into something that perceivably would be scary to us. I, I already shared with you, I have control issues, right? Think about this. God asked us to come here and plant this church. We had never lived here before. We didn't know people here. We didn't know what would happen. We didn't know who would show up. But we're supposed to go. Are you serious? That's scary stuff to me. For someone who has control issues, they look at the other people in the Bible. Look at Peter. There's that famous story where he's standing on the edge of the boat, and he's not even positive if it's Jesus or if it's a ghost, and he hears the phrase, come, come. Step out of the boat into the waves, and there's a storm, and walk. do something no human's ever done before. That's scary, isn't it? Gideon, if you read the Old Testament, there's a guy that's going to lead an army into battle, and you know what God tells him? You've got too many soldiers. <laughs> yeah, right. He says, I want you to whittle down your resources so that when this happens, you don't think that you did it based on your resources. You realize I did it. And so he takes his men down to about 300 men to go into a major battle. That sounds scary. And then here with Abraham, he says, you go someplace and you don't even know where you're going. That sounds scary, doesn't it? You know what's interesting? He's not afraid. 
The circumstances are scary, but he's not afraid. Read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. It says nothing about fear. Read Genesis chapter 12, which is the backstory to this passage of Scripture. It says nothing about fear. Do you know why? Because faith casts out fear. Real faith, not just positive thinking, not just I hope it works out well, but real faith in the one true and living God based on his commandments and his promises. Real faith casts out fear. Now that doesn't mean that things are not scary. It doesn't mean there aren't so scary circumstances in life. In fact, we know, just generally speaking, you know there's scary stuff in life, right? Like we're in October, okay? They're trying to, when you come to church, they got posters out there trying to scare you, okay? There's scary stuff that have people put masks on to try to startle you. In fact, I used to really enjoy scaring people um, as part of my training them in their faith, right? I remember when I was a senior in college, uh, my roommate and I, we used to try to scare the freshmen or the, the soon-to-be freshmen that would come into our school. He was an RA, and that meant that he had a, a room key to everybody's room in the whole dorm that we lived in. And what we would do is we'd get these masks on, we'd put them on, and I had a monkey mask. It was a gorilla mask that I would wear, and he would wear an, a scream mask. And You probably haven't seen that movie, but there's a scream mask, a long white face uh, that he would wear. And we'd go into these rooms, and they were pitch black, and we had a key. They didn't know we were in there. And I would sneak up next to the bed, about two feet down, and I would shake the bed. And my roommate would be about five feet away, right? And he'd stand there with a the scream mask and a black sheet over his face. And when they'd look up, he'd pull the sheet down. And you know how when you first wake up, you're kind of groggy and you're looking? And I'm right next to him, right? And so when they finally focus in, there's a scream mask right there. Whoo, there's a monkey right in front of their face. They were terrified. It was awesome. It was a Christian college, so I was training them in their faith, right? You know, they were fear here. There are scary stuff in this world. And sometimes it's scary like we get startled. And, but there's a lot scarier things than masks. There's a lot of scarier things than somebody being somewhere you didn't expect them to be. You go out and you do a survey of people on the streets and you ask them, what, what's your greatest fear? And you know what people will say? Their greatest fear are things like a terrorist attack, uh, that they're going to get cancer, uh, that there's going to be a natural disaster. Uh, maybe your greatest fear is you lose a loved one. Maybe your greatest fear is just the worst case scenario, whatever that is for you. Maybe your greatest fear is that something will happen to your children. Maybe your greatest fear is that you won't ever have any children. Maybe your greatest fear is you'll lose your job or money or you'll lose control. or Something will happen that you have no control over. Do you know what? That's scary stuff. But you don't have to have fear. It can be scary and you not be scared. Why? Because of the one you walk by faith with. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 23, verse 4, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you know what the valley of the shadow of death is? It's that doctor's diagnosis you were hoping you'd never hear. It's when the natural disaster comes. It's when the worst case scenario takes place. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There's no fear, for you are with me. Not because the circumstances aren't scary, because the one I have faith in, your rod and your staff, they comfort me because I have faith, and faith casts out fear. And you see it as you go through these faith stories in the Bible. You think about, can you imagine for a moment being the Israelites when Moses leads them out of Egypt and they're going and they're at the edge of the Red Sea and the Red Sea hasn't parted yet and they don't know the end of the story, okay? They haven't seen the movie yet of what takes place here and they're standing there. Imagine being one of two million Israelites and you see a cloud of dust coming up over the hill. The the Egyptians, they're coming for you and these are people that have beaten you your whole life and they've whipped you and held you in bondage and held you in slavery. What are you going to do? As they come to kill you. Do you know what Moses says to them? Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. You will, the, he will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see them again. In verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Be still? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm standing here, and people that have been beating me my whole life are coming running at me. You just stand there. Okay, that's not going to be one of the first options in my mind, okay? First option, run. Second option, try to fight. They've got chariots, they've got spears, and he says, don't be afraid. Why? Because God's going to take care of this. God's got this. You trust the one you can't see with the things that you can see. That's faith. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of outcome, you trust him because faith will cast out that fear. And it's what it does here for Abraham. And Abraham says here in this, or in this passage, it says about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, that's how he did it. That's why there was no fear. By faith, that key phrase, when called to go, that's his commandment, his commission, to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. And sometimes we read past that and we think, well, yeah, of course he did, he's Abraham. Or just kind of like it's a sterile situation, you know, like a flannel, there's a two-dimensional character on a flannel graph or up on some poster somewhere. It is not a real person. Do you know what the real command says? The backstory for this passage of scripture, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Here's what God said to Abram, because he was named Abram then. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, the town you're familiar with, your people, your friends, your support group, and your father's household. That's your inheritance that you're going to receive, the land, your bank account, your house, all that stuff, and go to the land I will show you. And so Abraham, he wasn't a sterile character. Abram had friends. He had family. He had money, he had a job, worked for a company, had a house. And God says, you go. Can you imagine for a moment what that would be like? Like, just think, if you left today and you get in your car and God says, go. Just go. Well, I, I, got, a, I got a lot of calls I got to make. and I got, No, you leave your people, go. Well, I, the house, I got to put the house on. No, 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 you just leave. You leave your inheritance, you leave your bank account, you leave all that stuff, you go. But well, wait a minute, what about, there's a plan and I've got, you go. And say you're ready, say you're willing to do that. And then you say, all right, God, where am I going? Just go. Just give me the address, I'm going to put it in my GPS. <laughs> I don't need to know all the details, it's kind of where it's headed. No, you go. Isn't that scary? Would we do that? Most of us, we wouldn't do that. That doesn't make sense. God wouldn't do that, right? He didn't tell us to do something like that. Maybe he only does that for people with like super faith. Maybe that's why, is that why he picked Abraham? Like, think about Abraham. He's the father of our faith, the father of Judaism, the father of Islam. You know, all these world religions, they pick Abraham as this man of faith. And so what was so special about Abraham? Why did God choose him? Have you read the Old Testament? It starts in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, tells his story. And you read through the Old Testament, he's all over the Bible. He's all over the New Testament. You can read about him in Acts chapter 7, Romans chapter 4, James chapter 2, here in Hebrews. He's all over the place in the Bible. Cited more than, he's probably the most, next to Jesus, the most popular character in the Bible. So, why did God choose him? It must have been because he had superior faith, right? Read it. Nope. That's not why. It's because he tried really hard to please God. Nope. It was because he was very moral. No, actually. Quite the contrary, if you know his story. Maybe it was because he was handsome, like Saul. No. Maybe at least he was, like, tall, right? Let's give him something, right? He had a good haircut, like Donald Trump. Nope. None of it. Do you know what is true about Abraham? Is that he didn't bring stuff to the table. In fact, he was an idol-worshiping pagan. Most of us don't realize that. Joshua chapter 24, Joshua talks about that when he's talking to his people years and years and years later. And Abraham's esteemed. 
He's held high. He's thought of much like we think of him today. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago your forefathers, including Terah, that's the father of Abraham and, and Nahor, they lived beyond the river and they worshiped other gods. Do you know what Abraham was doing when God called him? Trusting in things that he could see, trusting in his inheritance, trusting in false gods, trusting in stuff he thought he could control, trusting in something other than the one true living God. So why did God pick him? It wasn't because he was tall. It wasn't because he was handsome. It wasn't because he was moral. It was his God's grace. It's the same reason God picks you. It's not because you're tall. It's not because you're handsome. It's not because you're moral. It's not because you're religious. It's not because you showed up today. It's not because of any of that stuff. God picks you because of his grace. It's by him alone that he chooses us. That's grace. So why did Abraham go? Well, Abraham gets some incredible promises. If you read Genesis chapter 12, in the next two verses... Look at what gets told. I'll make you into a great nation. Sounds like a sweet deal. And I'll bless you. Awesome. I will make your name great. That sounds incredible, popular, lots of stuff. You're going to make me into a great nation. This is wonderful. And you'll be a blessing, huh? Verse 3. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So this isn't about me. Abraham has a choice here. He's going to be used, this is like the Great Commission of the Old Testament, he's going to be used to bless all nations. Abraham has got to go. That's his command, sound familiar? That's his command. You go, and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bless you, but here's the reason why. Not because of anything special about you, but for a purpose, so that you can be a blessing to the entire world. It's the same thing that happens for us. That We talked about it last week. Our lives are not about us. Newsflash for many of us, right? Especially those of us who baptize our narcissism with Bible verses. That's, it's not about us. Our lives actually are for the sake of seeking and saving the lost. We are sent people. We are to be sent just as the Father sent Jesus. He sends us. Go, therefore, make disciples. It's the same kind of command that you go out and you walk by faith. And as you do it, you teach them, you glorify me. And everything I've given you, all of your time, all of your life experiences, all of your talents, all of your money, all that stuff is for the sake of blessing the rest of the world. Do you understand if we got this, what would happen? People would be beating down our doors to come to church but they're not. Because you know what? They realize something that most of us are in denial of. That we don't really live on mission. That we are not existing for the sake of blessing the world around us. That we live for us. And we use Bible verses for our social clubs so that we can come together with people that are like us and spend time with people that are like us because it makes us feel good about us. And we'll sing some songs to God as kind of a token to Him. And people know that. I was listening to a pastor preach a couple weeks ago. I went out to Hickory. It was a guy named James McDonald. And uh, he was preaching, he's written a book called uh, Vertical Church, and he was doing a tour to sell the book, and I wanted to go out and see what he had to say. And we drove out there with our youth pastor, Josh Tovey, and his wife, and we're listening to this guy preach, and he's up there talking about one of the things he does is that he is uh, signed up to be a chaplain for the police department in their city. And the police department only calls him when they have some serious calls. And oftentimes when he gets called, he doesn't know what it's going to be like until he gets there. And he was telling us one story where he got called. He didn't know what was going on until he shows up at this house. And he walks in the back door of this house. And he's talking to a police officer in the kitchen. And he looks over into the garage. And you can see a 16-year-old boy hanging in the garage. And so you can realize it's a pretty serious situation. And in the other room, in the living room, the family's arguing about what's taking place. So they're in grief. They're upset. You can imagine how difficult of a time this was. And they're talking about how they knew that there were problems. They knew this kid was going through difficult circumstances. They knew that somebody needed to help. And they started talking about, we called social services, and they didn't help. And, and James, as a pastor, is hearing this in the other room. And he walks out, and he said, I didn't think much about what I said before I said it, but as they're talking through all the different places that they called to try and get help, 
He said, why didn't you call the church? He said, I'd never forget what this woman said back to him. Why would we do that? Why would, why would she call the church? Do you know the answer? Well, not the answer according to what actually happens experientially. But let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that the answer is that she should call the church because the church is the hope of the world. It's the only organization in the world that has the promise. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. They've got a message that's been given to them freely, and their mission is to go out and give it away. And no matter how much they give it away, they don't lose it. Isn't that amazing? And then I bless them, and I give them time, and I give them talents, and I give them resources so they can use those things to share this love with the world. Isn't that amazing? Why would you go anywhere else? And then you read the book of Acts, and you know what the book of Acts shows us? That the church, the local church, is God's plan A for reaching the, the whole world. And there is no plan B. It's us. It's you and it's me. That's the plan. There's no backup. Now, why would she go to the church? Here's why she says that. Because she knows in reality what we live like as Christians. And what we live like as Christians is not on mission. We've abandoned the mission. We want to hang out with each other, have a good social club, feel good about us, take Bible verses, and then baptize the American dream and pretend we're living out Christianity. Who else would do that anywhere in the world other than American Christians? That's not Christianity. That's not what this book says. But you know what the problem is with this book? This book is scary. And in order to live according to this stuff requires faith. The great news is that faith casts out fear. So who lives by faith? Well, you can look at your lives. Look at the things that are seen and see if you trust God who's not seen. His promises, his commandments, in all circumstances, regardless of outcome. The best way to do it is how do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? And you know what? If you start looking at those facts, it becomes evident that American Christians live the American dream. It's narcissism. It's self-centeredness. And we just use Bible verses to justify why we do what we do. We pull them out of context and we make them say what we want them to say to fit American Christianity. Jesus wouldn't talk about American Christianity. It was, come follow me. You take up your cross. You deny yourself. You follow me. It's better to give than to receive. About 2 to 3% of Americans tithe. Really? Oh, but that was, you know, that's because of the law. Abraham was a tither. He's before the law. It's like the base level of giving. How many people walk by faith with their finances? Not many. How many people walk by faith with their time? Not many. How many people are really using their talents, not for their own selfish gain, for the sake of furthering the mission of the gospel? Not many. That's the stat. Not many. Why? Because we're afraid. Afraid to walk by faith. Walking by faith means living according to his commandments, regardless of circumstances, regardless of outcome. So what if the circumstances are? Fill in the blank. You do what he says. But what if the outcome is, you do what he says? But what if he doesn't say about this thing? Oh, no, he said about everything. Go. He only gave Abraham one commandment. Do you know what our main one is? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and 19. Go. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. He even gives us instructions how. He didn't tell Abraham this stuff. Baptizing them in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything. I've taught you as you're growing and as you're changing, that's what you do in all circumstances. Well, wait a minute, but if I, but here's the thing. I can't, it's hard because I just, I can't see him. Or it's hard, look at Abraham, he had these promises. He was promised a land, a seed, a blessing. We get a promise too. In fact, you could argue it's a far better promise. The last part of verse 20 says this, and surely, I promise you, I guarantee, I will be with you. When you live on mission for me, I will be with you in a unique way. I'm everywhere all the time, okay? But when you live on mission for me, I'll show up. 
my presence will be made known. And that will be true until the end of the age, until I come back again. And surely I will be with you always. Well, we can't see him though. You kind of skipped over that one, Scott. Yeah. If you have been around Southbridge for any amount of time and you'll claim that you have not seen God, I don't think you're paying attention. If you were here last week, last week we played a video that had, I think, five or six different people tell their story of how God changed their life. There was one guy who specifically said this, and I quote, the changes that have happened in my life, I could not do them. God did. Let me ask you this question. Have we seen him? Well, maybe we don't see his face, and maybe we don't see his legs. Maybe, maybe he doesn't even have that stuff. But we see the effects. What about the guy that, that shared a story that there was a guy at our church that was living on mission, and listen how God shows up. He was living on mission, and so he goes and he takes a guy that comes to church that's a pretty good guy that everybody would like and went to church growing up. And he sits down with him and he says to him, do you know how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you need to be reconciled with God, that your sin actually separates you from God? But he's done something to reconcile you and that he paid for that sin on the cross. He, paid, he gave his life as a ransom to pay that debt that you couldn't pay. But what you have to do is receive that payment. You have to receive what Jesus did for you. And he was doing that right over at Bob Evans for breakfast one morning. And his name was Kyle. And Kyle said, in the Bob Evans parking lot, he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as a Savior. <laughs> do we get to see him? It seems like he shows up and does stuff that we can't do when we live on mission for him. And there was Mellie. Mellie shared her story last week. She talked about how she got to the place in her life where she couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. And she surrendered. And she said to God, I, I can't do this. I need you to lead. And he did. So who showed up? Who, who was doing that? Did we see him? Was it God? Or the effects, at least, of God? Or, or, or there was the guy, John Wright, remember him? He had a mohawk, a muscular guy that was on there. And he came to church one Sunday. We were having a baptism service, decided to come over. He sees a guy in the pool. He didn't tell this whole deal. He sees this guy in the pool who he can relate with, he can kind of connect with. And he says that his story might relate with his story. So after the baptism was over with, that guy that was in the pool, his name was Derek, shares his story about how Jesus Christ changed his life. And then John surrenders his life and trusts Christ. And in the video that you saw, you saw that Derek guy baptizing John. God showed up. And he was showing that he does a work we can't do. And so we see him, and what we see him doing, keeping his promises. When we obey his command, when we live life according to his command, when we walk by faith. And see, many of us, we don't see him, we don't experience him, because we're too afraid to walk by faith. Walking by faith means you trust him with everything that you have, with everything that you are. Do you? Then if we put your picture up on the screen, then that should, be, that should come right to mind, right? That should be there. That should be obvious. That's how you live your life, trusting him. And it casts out those fears. Because faith casts out fear. But not only does faith cast out fear, faith looks to the future. And that's our second point. Not only does faith cast out fear, but faith looks to the future. We've got these two phrases that really put this passage of Scripture together. By faith, and you see the fear situation, that Abraham goes without knowing where he's going. But then you see this next phrase. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. That's Canaan. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents. That's temporary structure. As Isaac did. And as Jacob did, they were also heirs with him of the same promise. So he never inherited this land. He never actually took possession of Canaan. But why was he able to do this? Why was he able to still live by faith? Verse 10, for, because, here's the reason, he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. It's mentioned again, chapter 12, verse 22. It's talked about in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. But he's promised this land. Can you imagine being Abraham again for a minute? 
You're promised a land, a country. And so you've got more property than your eyes can see. And he goes to that land and he actually lives in that land. And his focus isn't what many of our focuses would be. Can you imagine what that land's like? Now, I've not been to Canaan. I've not been to Canaan 4,000 years ago either. 4,000 years ago, imagining Canaan, I would picture there were probably a few spots at least that were just beautiful. Beautiful landscapes, beautiful pictures. And I don't know what Abraham liked to do as a hobby. I'd imagine there's a great spot to put a golf course. <laughs> that would have been cool, right? I don't know, football field and watching people run around with a leather ball. That'd be kind of cool. Or whatever, smaller little section for basketball. Whatever he wanted to do, he could have done all that stuff. All this stuff was going to be his. He'd inherit all this land. He left the inheritance of his father, and he was going to get an inheritance from God. How amazing. And he goes there, and he doesn't focus on that stuff. You know what's interesting? What many of us would do, I believe, if God said to us, I'm going to give you a whole country, you know what we'd do? We'd look for the best, the sweetest spot in that whole country. Probably some lakefront property, right? So we could settle down, have a beach house, and watch the water come in. Abraham and Sarah never get beachfront property and walk around the, the seacoast picking up shells and then dying. Do you know why? Because he existed for a different purpose. He was being blessed so that he could bless others, and his focus was on a city that was to come. You see, the scariest thing that happened in Abraham's life wasn't just that he left without knowing where he was going. It's what he left. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. He leaves his people, he leaves his country, he leaves his father's household. Do you know what that means? That means inheritance. That's a big deal back then. That means he already left land. He left the land that his dad was going to give him. He left his security. He left all that stuff, that inheritance. Why? Because he was looking forward to a different inheritance. He was looking to a city. He'd live in this place because he recognized he lived as a foreigner, as a stranger. You know what the Bible says if you're a follower of Jesus? That we're strangers in this place. First Peter chapter 1 says this. He's speaking to people that have been persecuted, that are, being, that are in suffering, and he reminds them, don't worry, this isn't your place. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. Those are people that place faith in Jesus. Strangers in the world. In Philippians, he says, we have a citizenship in heaven. In Ephesians, he says, you have an inheritance that's going to be in that place. Every spiritual blessing. And while you're here, you're an alien, you're a stranger. Those are the words that are used of us as followers of Jesus. According to the Bible, I'm not saying that's how we live, but according to the Bible, that's what it says about how we're to live on this place. And that's what Abraham did. Because he was looking to a different city. And it says in this passage, whose architect, the designer, was God. And he's the one who put all the pieces together too. He's the builder. And the city he's referring to is the city that we see in Revelation chapter 21 that John describes. And when John describes it, he says, I saw a city coming from heaven. And it was prepared like a bride is prepared for a husband. This is a beautiful place. Every detail has been paid attention to. And it says in that passage in Revelation chapter 21 that, that John heard God say, God say, that I will dwell among my people. They will be my people. I will be their God. And it's going to be a place, it says in Revelation chapter 21, where he's going to wipe every tear from every eye. There's not going to be tragedy. There's not going to be cancer. There's not going to be rape. There's not going to be economic downturn. There's not going to be terrorist attacks. There's not going to be any of that stuff. There's no pain. And there's no crying. And there's none of those things. And Abraham, he's looking forward to that place. And then it says in Revelation chapter 21 that God himself says, I am making everything new. That's the place he's looking toward. That's what he knows his inheritance is. Now, he was promised Canaan. He never gets Canaan in his lifetime. But he doesn't care because he's so focused on the future. Because faith causes us to look to the future. To look to that place that we're going to receive one day. Because, you know, if you're an alien, you're a stranger here, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you too will get an inheritance. You know what the primary thing that you get in your inheritance is? Because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you know what you get? God. That's what you get. God. 
And you get to be in that place where there's no more pain and there's no more crying and there's no more sin and there's no more addiction, there's no more bondage, there's no more affairs, there's no more rape, there's none of that stuff. Pain-free place. No more sin. That means there's no more guilt. There's no more condemnation. There's none of that. You get to live in a place like that. You know what else you get? Perfect harmony with all the believers. Perfect relationships. You'll know God's word perfectly. You'll have power. You'll have dominion. What an amazing inheritance. But you know what? It gets better. You can even have rewards there. The scripture talks about this. And here's how the system works. How you live your life here determines what rewards you get there. If you live your life by faith here with the things that you can see, trusting what you can't see, then what happens when you get there is far different. And we are told what the rewards are. Paul tells us that one of the main rewards is the people's lives who are changed as a result of how we invest our lives here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, he's speaking to the people he's invested in. And he says to them, just talking about this place, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, For what is our hope and our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? And he says to these people, Is it not you? Isn't it your changed life? And, and we're told God's investment strategy. Jesus himself, from his lips, in Matthew chapter 6, he tells us what to do. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, for what, he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, here where you can see stuff. Don't be so worried about this place where moth and rust destroy. It's all temporary. And Abraham lived like it was temporary and tense. And where thieves, they break in and they steal. Don't love that stuff so much because it can be taken. But, contrast, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not steal and they don't break in. These things can never be taken from you and you'll have them for all of eternity. And then he says this famous verse, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's very interesting to me that it's not the other way around. It's not where your heart is, your treasure will follow. No, it's if you want to love something, invest your money there. You want your focus to be somewhere, put your money there. All of a sudden, you start paying attention. Give some money to somebody in India and see if you start paying attention to stuff that happens in the news in India. Start sending your money to a local university and see which one you start cheering for. <laughs> see, where your money is, there your heart follows. That's what ends up happening. And he's saying, you invest your money in heaven. You invest your money in eternity. And how do you do that? You invest your money in changing lives. And you know what? If you do that, it'll be a, a walk of faith. Most people won't do that because most people are too afraid. And so they'd rather trust what's here. They'd rather trust their security. They'd rather trust what they can see and what they can control. And I hope that's not true of you if you're a follower of Jesus. My wife and I, we were talking about whenever God's called us to walk by faith in life. It's been scary. And we started talking about this week the three main times we've had to raise money for Southbridge Fellowship. And the first time was before this church ever started. When we came here, we didn't want people that lived in North Carolina to think that we were coming here because we couldn't get a job at like a real church, so we started one. And so what we did is we went around and we asked people for money that were in Michigan and Texas, different places around this country where we knew people, so that when we got here, we could just talk to people about their hearts. And that's one of the reasons why we put boxes up and we don't make a big deal about an offering. It's just kind of part of our story. It's just kind of happened that way. And what we said to people was this. We want you to give money to a ministry that you'll probably never attend. Tell me this isn't contrary to the American dream. You will never directly benefit from here on earth. In fact, you may never even see it. So I'm asking you to invest. And I said, give above and beyond your tithe. We're not asking you to rip off your church. We want you to give above and beyond your tithe so that we can start a church that exists for one simple fact. We want to see people's lives change for eternity. Do you know what's going to happen for those people that made an investment for this church? When they enter into heaven one day, Kyle's going to be there to welcome them. 
because they've invested in his life. The guy who prayed to receive Jesus over the Bob Evans parking lot and John Wright, he's going to be there. What is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown? What will we glory in when we stand before Jesus? It'll be these people. It's the Thessalonians for Paul. It's some of you for those people that gave to this. And the next time we had to walk by faith and ask people to give money and to give money ourselves was the Bridge Initiative Project we did, which we ended on September 30th. And I want to say, if it wasn't for the Bridge Initiative Project and the sacrifice that many of you gave, we wouldn't have property today. We wouldn't be where we're at today. So thank you. We genuinely appreciate that. And I know it was a faith journey for some of you. Remember when I stood up in front and asked people for money for that? I said, the, the large, we need a gift of $100,000. We hadn't received anything close to that in the history of our church up to that point. And there was a couple in our church that hadn't, they weren't even members of our church. They just started attending our church that looked at each other and they said that they knew that they were the couple that would give that gift. Now here's the thing. That started a faith journey for them. It was part of a faith journey for them. They're now out on the mission field, which means two things. One, we can't count on them giving again. <laughs> but I'm serious. And two, <clears throat> two, it means that Anybody who steps out on something like that, God's going to use that in their faith journey. And we're now at another place where we need to raise some money for Southbridge. And that's why we're doing this Whatever It Takes campaign. And Whatever It Takes campaign is going to take more than just a change of mentality. It's also going to take us making some tangible steps by faith with our finances. Now, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not talking to you. We want you to give your heart to Jesus. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you hear these words, I am talking to you. And what I'm saying is this, if we're going to do whatever it takes to seek and save the lost, to reach people, then it's going to cost money. And it means spending that money in such a way that it's an investment for a place that we can't see, lives that we don't know. In fact, it might be people that you never see that trust Christ as because you gave, it's because of your investment, that you were storing up treasure in heaven. And you'll see one day, you're going to meet people one day, Lord willing, that you never met. They're going to say, thanks. Thanks for your sacrifice. It's also going to mean a journey for you because some people will be the first time they trust God with their finances by faith. And what we're looking at doing, we believe the next step in our whatever-it-takes process is going to be a building a facility, a facility that better facilitates the vision we have for the 10 times impact we've been talking about since September. And we believe that's going to be a building that uh, we've shown some pictures of. We'll pop a picture up again here that's uh, about 20,000 square foot of auditorium space and some lobby space. And you'll see off to the side there, there's another 10,000 square foot. It's a little less detailed there because that's going to probably be modular space that we probably will lease for the first couple years in this project will be about a seven, approximately a $7 million project. Now, that sounds like a lot of money. If you weren't here last week, you don't realize we already spend a lot of money on facilities. Just with the rent we pay for this movie theater and renting some office space and renting another spot, we spend the equivalent of a $3 million mortgage. Here's the problem. It's not our mortgage, (laughs) and that's not the best stewardship. And what we're looking at doing with this project, the $7 million project, that includes the land and the building and everything is we're trying to raise $4 million. Now, that's a lot more than what we raised for TBI. What we had committed was about $2 million. So if everybody does what they did for TBI, we won't even be close because we lost the people that gave $100,000, right? <laughs> and we didn't only raised a little bit less than $2 million anyways. And now we're trying to raise $4 million. And so what is that going to take? Each one of you in your cup holder, when you came in today, had a little sheet of paper. I want to ask you to grab a hold of that. And that sheet of paper on there, it talks about a way that we could get to $4 million. Now, we're not naive enough to think that God's going to do it exactly with these details, but it gives you an idea. It gives you a gauge of what it will actually take. We talk about whatever it takes to get to $4 million. And so I just ask you just to look at that for a moment. We'll pop it up here on the screen. And you'll see it means about 200 people or family units or families or singles or however you break all that up. 200 folks that make a commitment on November 4th to making these types of commitments between a $1 million and $1,000. 
So we need 81 groups of people that range somewhere in that $1,000 to $5,000 range. And you look at the number all the way out there to the right, that's what those commitments will total. And if you add all those up from the top to the bottom, that adds $4 million. And you'll notice there's a big number on there, $1 million. We're asking God to give us a $1 million gift. We don't know who's going to do that. Maybe it's somebody who just popped in here today. Maybe somebody to watch online. Maybe it's you. I don't know, but that's 10 times larger than the greatest gift we've ever received before. Will you pray with us about that, please? And will you pray about what your role is anywhere in between that? This is a three-year commitment we're talking about. So over three years, you give $1,000. And you can cut out some Starbucks and some meals out and come to $1,000 over three years. Or maybe it's $30,000. Maybe it's $50,000. Somewhere on that chart. As you look at it, you probably even start placing yourself, where can I fit? And if you look at the other side of your piece of paper, what you'll see is there's some questions there with fill-in-the-blank spots. I want you to look at that real quick, and I do actually want you to fill this in, uh, but I'll tell you how it works. The first number is just, what do you think you could reasonably give over three years to a project like this? If this is your church, if this is, you've bought into this vision, you're either a member or an attender of this place, why don't you fill that in? Think about that number. What could you reasonably give? And maybe that means cutting out Starbucks, maybe it means sacrificing something else, maybe it means some cashing in an IRA or different things along those lines. What could you reasonably give? You, could, you know you could do that. You could manage that. Now, you'll notice there's some other blanks on there, which may scare you, but I'm not going to manipulate you, okay? So don't get nervous at this point. I'm not going to do what one woman had asked me if I was going to do. She was a mom. She's in my community group, and she knew on September 9th I was going to talk about the vision 10X, and she had come to some meetings we had had before that. And so on the way to church, she was trying to prepare her kids, and uh, her son and daughter about junior high age range, and she turned around to them and she said, you know, Pastor Scott's going to talk about 10X today, which is a vision to have 10 times impact on our city. And he's going to talk about a new facility. He's probably going to ask us to think about a number that we're going to give towards that facility. And so she's prepping them, right? And she says, what number? Not what our family is going to do, but what, what are you going to do? And I believe her son's about nine years old. And she looks at her son. And her son's thinking it's that day. And he says, um, $10? And she kind of thinks, how do I coach my son through this? And she said, well... You know, Pastor Scott's going to talk about 10 times impact, so he's probably going to say to you to take that number and multiply it times 10. Now, his eyes get real big. He's like, that's $100. And then his sister says, I'm glad you went first. I was going to say 30. (laughs) Here's the deal. I'm not going to say to you, whatever that reasonable number is, multiply it times 10, put it in the box. We've got your name. The IRS will call you if you don't meet this. That's not what we're going to do. But I want you to go on a journey, a faith journey. And so I ask you the second question is simply this. What would you do if you could just, do, if there weren't like restrictions, like I've got to pay this thing off, or what, if you, what would you just like to do for this project? Like what would you love to be able to give to this, out of this $4 million thing? And that's the next blank there. Just think about that number. And I want wives and husbands, for those of your couples, to write down your own numbers so you can have arguments, I mean conversations later about how this works. But think about that. If you, if, you just didn't, if you didn't have to worry about something that you think is coming up that's going to be hanging over here, if you didn't have to do, what would you love to do? And then the third one ends up becoming, what, what's your number? It might not be either one of those two, the reasonable or the just dream up number. But what is it? And here's how you find out that number. You pray. You ask God to speak to you. God, what level do you want me to trust you at financially for this? For this specific project, for an investment for eternity, for seeing people's lives change, what do you want me to do? Well, what are you asking of me? And ask him to bring you to a number. Ask him to speak to you. And I just ask you, will you trust him even with your finances? Talk about a tangible thing. Read Luke chapter 16. If we can't trust him with our finances, we don't really trust him. And so if you, if you think I'd say that just to get you to give money to our church, give money to a different church, okay? I'm more concerned that you don't walk by faith. 
And some of us, we won't because we're selfish and we're greedy and we're uncomfortable that we're talking about money and that's why. So let's just be honest with ourselves. You don't have to convince me. Just be honest with yourself that that's really what's happening in your heart. Some of you, you're excited about what God wants to do and you just got to figure out how do you, he's entrusted you with a certain amount and we all have different amounts. How are you going to use it for the mission? And that's really the question. Will you walk by faith? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you speak into every area of our lives. You speak into every situation, including our finances. And God, I pray if there are some that are just simply selfish or greedy, that you would convict their hearts and that you would change their hearts. And Father, that you'd do a work in their lives so that their lives would count here. And that you'd show them that their life's about more than just us. It's about reaching this world for you and for your glory and for all nations. And Father, I pray for whatever it is you desire to do in this campaign and whatever you desire to do through this church, God, that you'd be glorified. And I pray that nations, literally nations, would hear about you showing up and changing lives here at this place at Southbridge and that you would use some of our investments, our financial investments, our investments of giving our lives away for the sake of other people. And God, I pray that would happen. I pray that you would convict hearts. I pray that people would change the way they use their job, their platforms, their companies, their talents, their skills, and their finances for your glory, for your mission to seek and save the lost. And Father God, I pray if there are any that were here today, they're listening in on things that a family of believers talks about and they've yet to place their faith in Jesus, I pray today would be a day of salvation. I pray, I pray specifically for the people that think I'm talking to them right now, I'm praying about them. If you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today, then it means acknowledging your sin and accepting payment. It doesn't mean giving money, it means receiving the payment that's been given for you through Jesus Christ's blood on the cross. He gave everything for you, and he wants a relationship with you, and that's what he's speaking to your heart today. And if that's you that I'm talking to, we just acknowledge your sin before him and ask Jesus to be your Savior? And before you leave, would you mark that on your card that today you ask Jesus to be your Savior? Maybe you pray a prayer like this, Father God, I admit that I'm a sinner, and I need your son Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Thank you for saving me. Just a surrender prayer. And Father, as believers, we surrender to you. And we ask you to increase our faith, to grow us in faith, to trust you more. In Jesus' name I pray.